out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the musician-composer Kev Hopper, one-time member of Stumped. Yes, that much-beloved Irish-English indie band from the early 80s who released a string of incredible records, singles, albums and also featured on the famous new musical Express cassette, the C86 Um, which featured the song Buffalo. Do check it out. It's fantastic. Anyway, he's had a prolific solo career and has uh, also sort of worked with lots of other bands and artists, as you'll find out in this interview. But also the most exciting thing is that he's got a new album coming out on Dimple Disc Records. The album is going to be titled Sans Noodles. Coming out at the end of February 2022, so there you go, check it out. It's going to be available on all formats, but uh, this is me and Kev in conversation. So after several minutes of casual chat, which was all about showbiz really, uh, we got down to that exciting subject that was, yes, who are Dimple Discs? this record label that has been appearing prolifically in the last few years. Anyway, Kev's going to tell us more. He's going to tell us now. Over to you, Kev. The, the reason for all, all, that, all those connections is that Brian, um, Brian's an old friend of all those bands. Right. So uh, he's the guy that runs Dimple Discs, along with Damien O'Neill, the undertones fella. Oh, it's, so all, it's like Irish... Scooby-Doo, isn't it? Yeah, like, oh, no wonder he's on it as well. Yeah, the Irish, <laughs> there's an Irish connection. And Sean and, and Carvel, from Micah Disney are big friends as well. So, and I am, I've been, I've known Brian for 40 years, so. Right. It's all connected like that. Like that. It's a kind of, you know, a bunch of mates. <laughs> it's a holistic indie love fest, which has gone into the world of slightly avant-garde pop. I wouldn't say it's rock, is it? I don't it? think it was Brian's intention to make it like that. I think their, their, their blueprint was pure pop. We're going right. To pure pop thing. But I think <laughs> I'm not quite sure what's happened. <laughs> but um, it's certainly branched out a bit, you know. And um, I, I'm I'm actually quite worried about whether it, my stuff's gonna gonna dive. You know, it's gonna flunk. Right. Cost cost um, dimple discs a lot of money because uh, I I haven't sold anything for a long time. You know, uh, uh, so I'm not. Co- you know, I'm not full of confidence about it doing well. I'm just riding on on, on the optimism of, of Brian and um, the Dimple Disc label, you know. Yeah, well, it sounds fantastic. You've got to have faith. You've got to have faith. And um, we could strum a guitar and sound like George Michael. But, interesting. so when did he, because I've been playing the album a lot in the last couple of days, and it's kind of interesting. Yeah. It's got such a lot of variety for 12 tracks with slight, you know, general theme but not that much of a theme though isn't there because everyone is quite different there's there's like 12 tracks there there's yeah. like um there's heavy percussion there's one called truth truth tones which has got heavy percussion which is a bit like pots and pans and then there's there's theme for lovers which is quite a kind of kind of a european soundtrack and uh, there's fruit flies which sounds a bit like um 
kind of the soundtrack to Betty Blue in a way, but that's in Sartre, isn't it? And um, yes, and then there's science fiction kind of vibes with Lotus Cheek. So how did this kind of, when did you start putting the album together? I started, um, well, Brian has said, why don't you do an album for us? And I was humming and hawing about it, not quite sure whether whether I wanted to do that because uh, actually partly because I wasn't confident about telling him, any, you know, um, I mean, you know, as you, as you know, people in there who've reached their sixties and had former careers are, are regarded with a lot of indifference, you know, now. And uh, I, I was just a little bit worried about that, you know, um, but, you know, Brian's a persuasive fellow, and I, and I said, yeah, okay, I'll do one. Right. <laughs> so I've always got lots of material around. Yes. Um, if, I, if I could, I'd do two albums a year. I've, got, I've always got enough to do that. But there doesn't seem any point if I can't sell them. Yes. Because you started your, the solo career in 1990 after Stump, had sort yeah. of come to an end with stolen jewels. So in that time and coming up to the present day, you've just been constantly making music, putting out sort of solo albums, and mostly are you have you been mostly a sort of, you know, on your own, but with occasional friends coming in, other musicians to sort of accompany. For, for the recordings, yes, but I've been in two bands. So I've been in a band called Ticklish, which is very electronic with three other people, an improvisational band. Yes. And then I had my own band, Prescott, which is, you know, kind of like a bit of a super group. So I had Rodri Marsden from Scritti Politi, um, uh, uh, Frank Bing from Not This Heat and other bands, you know. Yeah. And Keith Molyneux from um, Harubu. So we were active, you know, playing live, and we did two albums. Uh, yes. But it was, it's very hard to sell that kind of music, to, to actually, you know, we never got beyond playing for more than 100 people venues. You know, we did the old ones that were bigger than that. But in general, it was, we couldn't branch beyond it. We were playing inst funny instrumental music, you know, yes. instrumental music middle-aged guys doing it it's you know it's an absolute nightmare trying to get gigs and and whatnot for that kind of music so I have been active it's just that you know I've just fallen into obscurity <laughs> <laughs> well it's kind of it's kind of interesting though because I it's kind of interesting what you said about um indifference to to people in their 60s because because having done this show now for a long time I didn't realize there were quite so many bands in the 80s indie bands especially um yeah I mean there's a sort of a passing of time where you know we we I said the royal we this is but um you know we're into a scene it's all good it you know often ends badly though and then we all move on and blah blah and then about 20 30 years later there's a bit of a reflection of about what had happened back then and it's not just about rose-tinted sunglasses sometimes it's a little bit like reappraising it and also what I found is kind of going back and finding things that I missed the first time because obviously it was kind of harder to um 
to always get to hear something, you know, because it wasn't so accessible. And so you think, oh, I miss this band, oh, I miss that scene. And it's been kind of quite interesting just how much there's been. But I suppose a lot of it has been gotten reappraised because there's been various books that have come out. There's been, you know, documentaries, like we saw the one on the Nightingales with Robert Lloyd, you know, featuring yeah. Stuart Lee. And then there was ones on the the go-betweens and the wedding presents album George Best and and the chills from New Zealand. So I suppose, you know, there is a certain curiosity about certain different scenes, but you're probably right in the sense of, you know, making new music probably is a lot harder for anybody to um, make a go of it, really. That's what um, I think. Well, I mean, you know, with, with Stump, for instance, you know, we... Um, we did a little revival. We did. We played a gig. We rehearsed for a week, and we did play the gig and, and caught. And I, yes. Um, but then, you know, um, that was it, that didn't pass because Mick Mick um, Mick got ill and died. So um, you know, uh, you know, we could have done more gigs, but I doubt if we'd written, we wouldn't have written any new material. It was just too too much of a logistical nightmare with everybody in, in different parts of it scattered around diff different parts of the British Isles you know yes um, it is tricky I know because there's been a few bands that have sort of reformed for various reasons you know the stars lined up and you know sometimes they've just played old material they've come back and sometimes recorded a few new bits and pieces which I think they've enjoyed I mean it's kind of yeah it's kind of interesting how bands develop, you know, from that period, whether to just go solo like the Smiths and then just hate each other for the rest of their lives or sort of, um, yes, try, try and sort of patch up those little differences, which is quite tricky. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's, always, it's always nice. It's nice that the 80s are still so alive. So, yeah, so when, when lockdown came, had you started this album or was this one of those albums that was made during lockdown? No, not really. Um... Well, I started it early in the year, so I started it around um, January. I can't remember if there was a lockdown this year, was there? There probably was. January 2021? Yeah. Yeah. I thought, it my God, you, you, you'd be working really quick if it was this year. <laughs> I did. I, it took me, it didn't take me long. It took me um, three months of solid concentration. Right. So I, I finished it in June. Yes. And what was the process? I mean, what comes first? Does the title comes first? Does the idea, or do you are you sort of rehearsing and, and sort of, you know, twiddling around, having a you know a little bit of a session, I've got, and then I've got lots of stuff on my computer, uh, sketches or half finished things. So there's always a lot of, a lot of materials to sort of choose from and develop and so then it's just a matter of uh you know um uh, editing and and thinking about structure yes so the the so there are often things that have been around for a while and and have to be you know the first tune on the record i i wrote about 15 years ago oh and it, which, which one's that it, oh i can't remember what's it called um oh fatten chances called oh yes the, the opening track in fact i should have looked there yeah. to begin with really uh, yes I've, okay I've then it, i've had it in about three different versions you know different um you know iterations and 
that, that I already arrived in the last one in, you know, last year. So it got a kind of facelift and new sounds and, and a new arrangement. Yeah. Because I wasn't happy with it previously. So I, I, that tends to be the story. I have lots of stuff that I'm kind of juggling around and rethinking and, and things that are half formed that need developing. And then things that are done spontaneously, but then need developing as well. Mm. So I very rarely do a kind of sketch thing. I have to think about, you know, um, forming it into something to a, a structure, you know, getting a structure together. Is it then the case that you uh, just work on one song and and nothing else until that's completely done because it's too destructive? No, no, no I, I, I work on several at once. Right. Because that, you know, I just wondered how you kept the focus if you were working on... I have a list. Right. I make a list. So, so uh, when I close the computer down, I, I have, you know, a task list of things that I need to fix. So I don't need to be inspired ever. Uh, you know, I, I just, it's just, it's just about, you know, the relationship between um, the parts of the structure. Mm. That, and there are job and there are jobs that I assign myself to do. So uh, it's not a case of of inspiration. It's just work. You know, it's just um, concentration. Yes, because with that, you know, I mentioned that the track "Truth Tones." Did you yeah. sample? Did you sample pots and pans? By the way, no, I don't, no, I didn't do that. That um, that was originally written for Prescott. Right. But we never got around to playing it. I mean, it's a very the the, the tune is very elongated. Um, the, the 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 melodic sections are, are pulled apart in a, in a, you know in a, over a long period of time. And then the um, there's a lot of um, sonic kind of you know deviance you know uh, transgression uh, throughout the piece. And then there's, but there's real bass playing and, and a, you know, and uh, real guitar playing and whatnot. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a, uh, it's quite, quite an involved piece, uh, piece, piece of work actually. That actually. Yeah, yeah. I just, yes, there's definitely heavy bass parts throughout it. But then a song like a, also like, um, is it Loftus Cheek? That's that yeah. sounds quite different in its kind of. I don't know where it's coming from. It sounded much more science fiction. I just wondered if, if, if you have a sort of something in your mind that sort of keeps you focused on um, keeping, you know, a certain sort of sonic harmony going throughout the track. Uh, well, I, you know, I have a kind of palette. I kind of arrive on a palette of sounds fairly on. So I, the, the, the choice is whether to sort of deviate from that. Uh, but then you you might lose the the kind of the the kind of singular quality of it, you know. It's, I think it's, sometimes it's good to stick to a small palette of sounds, and then you you just do variations on those sounds, or that or that structure or a rhythm or something. Yes. Deviate too much because then you end up creating another track within a track, uh, which I don't I don't tend to like. So. Um, mm. Yeah, I can't. Sorry, I can't remember what your original, what your question. Well, was. I think it was it was it was more it was more to do with, you know, each of your tracks on the album is a very specific kind of atmosphere to them, and I just wondered how you managed to sort of keep that focus and not 
always end up going into kind of kind of like the average of everything rather than say no we're going to stick with this kind of this feels a bit more I don't know there's a couple of songs which feel a bit oriental and there's a couple which also feels yeah. a bit more like I said science fiction and there's there's one which again has this kind of slightly I don't know European sounding soundtrack like um, fruit flies and I just sort of wondered how you kept the discipline not to keep on sort of then going oh my god they all sound the same at the moment uh, well, you know, I, I think it probably depends who you speak to, because somebody else might say, well, um, they all sound the same. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, I mean, the bass player Percy Jones complained that everybody was saying you sound like Jack Epistorius. And, but then the other, the, the other, his other fans knew he didn't sound like that. They said, you sound like Percy Jones, you know. Um, it's kind of, uh, you know, I think it's a, a difficult one. But when, 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 when the, when I originate the, the songs and decide on the kind of intrinsic character of the sounds and, and the, the structure, I do tend to try and stick to that. You know, uh, they, you know, as I said before, if you if you're endlessly kind of diverging from the original kind of, you know, the, the, the original kernel of the, the tune, mm -hmm. you, you can end up with one of those, as you're suggesting, a kind of homogenous sounding record where everything is pretty much the same. Yes. Same palette, and, you know, and whatnot. And are there some tracks on it, on this album, which have came together really easily and you went, wow, I've just managed to knock that off, you know, in a few days and others that, you know, were a lot more difficult to sort of feel kind of, you know, either happy or comfortable with at the end thinking, yeah, I've, I've got to a place which I'm pleased with. I just wondered, you know, how each one, you know, varies and which ones, you know, were quite, oh yes, gosh, I wish I could do that all the time. Whereas others, you got into a bit of a sticky cul-de-sac of creativity. No, I don't get. I don't get really stuck on stuff. I, I, I um, I don't let myself get to a stage where I'm, I'm sort of, you know, I've come to a, a halt. So I've got writer's block, or, you know, I don't know where to take something. I, I tend to, you know, I just need to think about it. All you need to do, I think, when you're making anything, is just you just need to think about where it's going and what, and what the essential character of the thing is. Uh, so they're kind of, they have the same, they, they all have the same kind of work put into them. Yes. They all have the same kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, there wasn't any scale of, of, of this one doesn't need much work, this one needs a lot, you know. I, I, don't, I didn't really have any perception of that, you know, that, that kind of in the workflow. A kind of uh, you know a kind of hierarchy of of problems to solve and whatnot. They all seem to have an equal amount of of, of problems to solve. <laughs> they, they, they all required an equal amount of work, I think. Yes, three in the morning, just trying to sort out what was going to be. Yes, and um, I mean, just kind of as a curious kind of way, I mean. You know, I was I was born, you know, 64, 
So, you know, my, my sort of early kind of musical moments in life were that kind of glam period of the 70s with people like Sweet and Slade and T-Rex, Gary Glitter. But luckily, David Bowie was my first single and first love with Space Oddity. I mean, what was your kind of musical awakening? And I just wondered when you first got your bass guitar. Yeah, I liked Gary Glitter and I liked Diana Ross and the Beatles, the Wings, you know. Yes. Uh, and then um, when I was in my late teens, I was into uh, uh, Return to Forever, Brand X, you know, um, Weather Report, that sort of thing. Right. And um, uh, when I was at art college, I was more into kind of um, post-punk, you know, DAF, um, Perubu, that sort of thing. And then beef art and craft work and whatnot. Yes. And then maybe mid 80s you know more more avant-garde stuff um, um avant-garde classical 60s classical you know um messian ligety what's and that sort of thing um, yeah did you did, were your were your parents at all kind of musical creative musical no. or creative no not in the least in fact they discouraged me from um from well the particularly understand what I was in, interested in, you know, um, they, they, but they, they, you know, when they saw me on the telly, it, it kind of, <laughs> <laughs> it helped. Know, they kind of um, maybe changed their mind a little bit, but I wasn't really, I was told to sort of get a job, get a proper job, get a job, stop talking about, I, I, I had, was brought up in that kind of atmosphere. Yes. Uh, keep it as a hobby. Don't know. That's not a proper thing, you know. So when did you, when did the bass sort of gravitate into your life? Uh, well, I heard um, the, the early Yes records, Chris Squire, and I immediately, my ears pricked up and I thought, what the hell is that incredible sound? Yes. And someone just said, well, it's a bass guitar and they've only got four strings. And I thought, wow, I want, I want, I want to play one. I want to see one, you know, and see if I can sound like that. Yes. And did people like Barry Adamson and Jar Wobble, did they inspire you at all during that sort of post-punk period to explore the bass guitar even more? Uh, well, well no, not really, not specifically to, you know, like, you know, I didn't have, I don't, my bass heroes were all people from the jazz rock kind of scene. They were Stanley Clark, Percy Jones, you know, uh, Colin Hodgkinson from Backdoor. I learned the whole of the back, the first Backdoor album. I, I you know, learned it in my bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, uh, but the, the music, the post-punk music, you know, it's it certainly, I didn't think I was technically good enough to be in a band like Henry Cow or, or uh, you know, Nash, or Hatfield and the North or anything like that. I thought I wouldn't be able to manage it. But when I saw magazine or, you know, I saw some of the punk bands and whatnot, I thought, or Peruba, I thought, you know what, that, that, I like that music and I think I could have a go at it, you know. So it, it was very encouraging to grow up in that, in that atmosphere because you think, well, you don't have to be a virtuoso. You can just, you know, add to, add to what, what's going on with the band. Yes. You know? 
So how did yeah. you, I mean, how did you meet the other members of Stump? Did you, were you all at art college or were you just in the... I met, I met Chris in, in Whitstable, where I am now. Uh, he was an art student at Canterbury. And um, we, we, I was up here with my girlfriend for the summer and we were jamming. And he, he, um, he was a fairly straightforward R&B player, but he had this very odd aspect of his playing, uh, playing very high up the neck and a tremolo arm, kind of odd style. And I thought that would go really well with, with Fretless Bass. So it started, to, started from that as to jamming. Yes. And then Rob, Rob was acquired through Melody Maker advert. And then um, Mick came in through a connection with Rob, you know, because they Mick and Rob had were acquainted from the cork scene. And suddenly it all made sense because it was a kind of a bit of a golden period at that the indie pop world, wasn't there? Because there's, you know, for me, there was that kind of the post punk world, and then there. I mean, I know there was lots of other scenes. There was like, on, I don't know, was it New Paisley, Gothic Rock, New Romantic? But there was definitely, there was definitely that moment, you know, in about 82, 83, where indie, indie pop rock became such a sort of explosion of things. We had the gatekeepers during that period. You know, we had, obviously, John Peel was huge. So that was kind of yeah. a great access to a bigger audience. But three weekly music papers, which all had huge circulations. And every city and town in the UK had sort of an alternative venue or alternative night. So it kind of helped people tour around the country in their trusty transit van to sort of play in front of 150 other kids like me who paid three pound on the door to see about three bands. So it was kind of interesting. So when you, when Stump came together, did it sort of gel quite quickly? Cause it was quite interesting kind of characters in the band. Uh, no, not really. Um, uh, well, you know, one thing I forgot to say was Nick, Nick Hobbs from the shrubs. You may, you may be talking to cause he's yeah. he 86 brother. Is he? Is he on there? Yeah. Yes, he was. He, he is on the shrubs. Yes. Uh, he, he was with us, first of all, before um, Mick. And it, um, we, members of, we just felt that that, that, that wasn't going to go. It wasn't, we, we could have been an art band with Nick singing, but we, we wanted a sort of pop side to the band. So we had all this, this kind of, this, these funny sort of uh, riffs and structures, but we wanted uh, a pop sensibility. So catchy lyrics and, and sing-along bits, you know. So uh, it, it did, we didn't just want to be an art band, you know. I think it would have just sort of, and we just don't, didn't want to play rooms at the top of pubs and all that. No. And also at that time, and I'd sort of forgot about this, but there was also on a Friday evening or Friday afternoon um, from, was it Newcastle? The tube was on. So there was, there was kind of yeah. another sort of avenue for people to sort of get exposure. But you did an EP and then the first album, which was, is it Quirk Out, which was, um, yeah. that was produced by the one and only Hugh, Hugh Jones. And you went to Rockfields. What was that experience like? It was great. I was really upset because uh, on the Rockfield documentary, they didn't mention Stump at all. 
And also, and the listing of bands that had played at the end, there was a great big long list that came down with about 200 bands. Stump went on there and we spent a whole week making that record. And it was a great experience, yeah. Yes. It's funny, it's funny. Had you gone in with the songs already pretty well formed or were you having to? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Hugh Jones helped um, organize the vocal side of things a bit. I mean, you know, um, I think some of the, the vocals on some of the songs needed, needed a bit more, a tighter sort of arrangement and he helped with that. You know, sort of galvanizing mix kind of um, thought, you know, his sort of delivery. Yes. Um, yeah, it was a, cool, a successful, of, um, you know, union of, um, you know, producer sort of tapping on the energy of the band and whatnot, you know. Yeah, well, I, I'm, you know, I mean, anybody who I've spoke to who's worked with him just said he was an extraordinary character and everyone loved him. I think, did he just smoke a lot though, didn't he as well? But everyone did in the 80s. So it's just one of yeah. those things. People didn't care then, did they? But I know his kind of CV is kind of quite amazing. And when, and when sort of you suddenly got that attention, you know, with John Peel and, and, and you did perform on the tube, didn't you, I think? Yeah from what I remember. How was, how did the band sort of cope with that kind of initial attention and success? Well, it was great, you know. I mean, when we did the EP, um, we were offered a Peel session really the next week. Uh, it just, it was just like that straight away. And um, so we, from, from the sort of slightly, you know, staggered beginning of the band, when we were off and running with the EP, it just, it was meteoric. It was just, yeah, the one thing after another, management, bigger gigs, queues around the corner for gigs. You know, then the, the tube thing happened. You know, it was and, just, yeah, it was, it was quite amazing. It was kind of a bit of a glorious period, I suppose it was also, I was a certain age then. So, you know, I did enjoy, you know, the bands like Stump, Bogshed, Big flame, you know, they, it all just seemed to sort of run so nicely against people like the Wolfhounds and the June Brides. There'd been or Orange Juice as well, yeah, yeah, no. So there was kind of just a lot of really exciting indie bands that were sort of forming. They were all slightly different. And then obviously John Peel introduced us to the world of, you know, Sly and Robbie and the Taxi Gang and the Bundu Boys. You couldn't miss the Bundu Boys on the John Peel show. So it was good. So how would, so by then were you kind of full time with the band? We uh, we we went full time. We got management, I think, in eighty seven or the end of eighty six, and then we we had a little small wage. Right. So we were full time. Yeah, I mean, we were playing three or four gigs a week, up and down. The, you know, we were constantly going up and down the motorway in the transit van and yeah we were really busy before yes. time. so we you know it was yeah we were starting to make a living out of it it's yeah cool. and that was on the was it the ron johnson label you were on to begin with yeah, yeah. and then the the second album which comes out towards the 87 time is that um is this when you get signed to ensign records yeah that was i i think it came out in 88 the Fierce, a fierce pancake. Yes, we loved it. Yeah. We did it. So with the recording, this isn't at Rockfields, but did you go to Berlin to record any of this? 
Yeah, we went to Hansa Studios. Studios, the famous. Yeah. yeah. Was that, that was, was that because yeah. of the um, the low album? No, no. We we the, um, I didn't. I mean, I didn't know much about Hansa Studios. I knew that um, Iggy Pop and David Bowie had recorded there, and, and Nick Cave, other people like that. Um, but it was cheap. Right. You, it had accommodation at the top, and then there were two Ton Studios, three Ton, ton Studios at the bottom of the building. And it was out of fashion, out of favour, and very cheap. Right, and it was, uh, it was sort of crumbling. It had it, you know, it had these huge rooms, but it was all, it was sort of tatty. And um, you know, I remember when we arrived there, Nick Cave opened the door of the building. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it must have been very exciting, actually. So, did you had you started working with Stephen Street at this stage, or was that a bit later? Yeah, he, he, no, he um, he came in to engineer it, so he was around for some some work in London. That's one yard studios, I think, where we did some some things, and then we went to do a bulk of it in Hansa. Right, and were you pleased with the kind of the end result of it? Well, I I, I like I liked it. I thought it was more atmospheric, and and you know there was more I think variety than we work out. But I know that that some people thought that Quirk Out was livelier. It was more live and sort of more kind of immediate. But I, I prefer the kind of atmosphere of it, uh, you know, than the use of samples that were coming in. And yes. It had, it had a sort of heavier, more atmospheric sound, I think, you know. Yeah. And what's your, I mean, you know, because there was, I know this, I don't think this is on the album, Charlton, Charlton Heston. What's the kind of your memory of putting that record together? Um, okay, well, I, I had, um, I had a, a sort of some samples of people burping. And I put it into a funny sort of loop and it started to end up sounding like frogs. Right. Chirping together. And then I remember Chris doing a country and western lift to it and Mick loves country and western and he wrote a country and western song to it it was that simple it was that simple and it just came did you know you'd written an indie classic at that stage <laughs> no <laughs> did you think this is this is this is going to go down in 80s indie classics you know this is <laughs> You know, if anybody wants to know, you know, you'd sort of put on. There's a few, aren't there? There's, but that is definitely up there with like, if the kids who were, you know, wanting to know what the what we did in the '80s, that would it be it actually. So well, the yeah. thing about that song was, it's not something that I would would ever do on my own. It's not. I don't like country and western music. I don't mind admitting that. Uh, and but, I. The, the funny sample backing, the frogs and whatever, and this weird kind of thing. That was my contribution to the, to the tune. And, um, and then the other two boys were there, the, you know, wrote the bulk of the, the melody and whatnot. It's something that, what the, that's the nice thing about being a band, you know. Yes. Is, 
when all these disparate things come together and you get something new that none of you would have written if you hadn't been with these people. And yes. I love that, that feeling. Well, it's interesting. I did say this to somebody the other night, a musician. <laughs> I asked them that question. Of course we've watched it. Everyone would have watched it. But have you seen the Beatles, Let It Be, eight hours of them sort of putting together the album? And I, I say that because um, I don't assume anyone would have done, but obviously I should have done now. And um, B, it was just interesting, that process of seeing them sitting there, strumming away, just coming up with ideas you know, just humming away, just making up lyrics on the spot just to keep the melody going. I just wondered if you could really have, you know, you related to seeing that process if you had seen the Beatles film. I haven't seen, I haven't seen it, but we didn't write the songs like that. It was usually me and, me and Chris with wrists coming in. And then we'd give those, we'd play them to the drummer, to Rob. He'd fix a drum beat to them and then we'd give a tape of that to, to Mick. And Mick was very slow to come up with every, anything. He, we'd have to push him, nag him to, to come up with lyrics. So yes. how, it happened in that order in general. Yeah, was that, was that the story of the band as well? I think, Mor I think Morrissey did the same. I think he would just kind of occasionally swan in with some lyrics, do it, and then we'd just go off again. Who was that? That was on the, so perhaps, you know, perhaps it's a thing that singers do actually. But one thing I've noticed doing this show, because um, a lot of bands do have that five-year narrative, you know, they get together, they have the honeymoon period, which can be a bit hit and miss, but, you know, they get, you know, eventually if they get a single, you know, they get John Peel, you know, a play and then a John Peel yeah. session, that first album, things going well, lots of touring in their transit band around the country. The second album can be a bit tricky. And then sometimes the third album never appears. But also the other thing that I hadn't really appreciated until doing it was that kind of that musical scene had changed a bit. You know, the next wave of 16 to 18 year olds coming in were looking for their kind of soundtrack to, the, to their formative teen period. And sometimes even a band five years ago can feel a little bit like it's been around the block and a bit old hat. And also, you know, there was the ecstasy scene had come in and people were into dance music. I just wondered how you were kind of navigating and sort of coping towards the late 80s yourself as a musician and a, as a band. Oh, well, yeah, you kind of described the arc of a band, you know. You've done, you've done that very well. <laughs> I think I've done about 700 interviews. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. You know, it was exactly like that. Um, by by the end of, by the middle of 88, it was all going over to dance music. It was really on hip being in a, ba in a band, you know, and um, that showed in the amount of people that came to the gigs. There's not very many people turned up to the tour we, we organised, you know, the British tour. Yes. Uh, everyone was out dancing in a field, you know. <laughs> and, um, every, everyone had sold their um, guitars and bought Atari computers and samplers and whatnot. You know, the smart people have anyway. Yeah, it's it was quite. But then I think there was that other little. So there was a North London scene with people like the Faith Healers and Silverfish and My Bloody Valentine. So there was a sort of a squat scene in London that was kind of yeah, keeping. Yeah. yeah, I mean that was the other side of it. There was a kind of. It went to sort of this shoegazing wall of sound thing, you know, this My Bloody Valentine thing, you know, um, rather than this kind of like, I mean, the stump was a sort of lively kind of music, you know, it was kind of 
you know, it was an agile sort of rhythmic thing. Yes. Uh, uh, with a lot of kind of um, performance and sort of character, you know, kind of, kind of you know, um, big exclamation marks and sort of, you know, it was kind of arresting. <laughs> yeah, and kind of quite abstract yeah. lyrics as well, which were quite, yeah, um, they weren't mumbled, yeah. were they? They weren't mumbly lyrics that you couldn't hear. They were quite definite. No, no, no. So when the band sort of broke, did you all sit down and have a moment or did you just stop, you know, coming to rehearsals? Was there a definite uh, a day that it happened? Yeah, it was uh, when we did the electric ballroom um, in Camden. Uh, there was, oh, oh, it was terrible. It was a terrible gig. You know, it was, everyone was arguing and then there was a big argument on stage. Uh, the songs were played at twice the speed. It was just lots of despondency and bad moods and, and lots of drinking. Uh, you know, and it all came to a head. On stage? Yeah, it was kind of happening on stage. There was a lot of, you know, it was just, there was a lot of bad vibes. That bad vibes. I do, I do remember hearing about the Eagles being on one of those moments where, <laughs> where members of the band were literally, were, were sort of literally saying, when we finish, I'm going to come and beat you up. And, yeah. the, and the guitarist literally throwing the, you know, throwing his instrument and just running for it because he knew that the person in the band was going to felt, you know, find him and beat him up. It must, I would love to have been to, I mean, it's not good for the band, but I mean, it'd be amazing being in the audience watching this going on, sort of, um, yes, the breakdown of a band. What does it, what happens then when you go backstage and you, you sort of have your gear and your equipment and you have to, I don't know, it's not a big space, is it? What, what do you, you know, how do you navigate that next minute? Well, we were confronted by the manager and a couple of other people asking of us we wanted to split up because they had, they they weren't impressed with what was going on. They could see the the, the you yeah, know that things were breaking down, and we said yes, we do want to split up. Bad enough. Yes. Is there anything you have to do, you know, at that stage, apart from just say, get your stuff, you know, and just go? Do you have to go back and I don't know? sign anything or do you just never see each other again for a while uh i don't think i can't remember to be honest i think you you, you, you know you probably call in a week later or something <laughs> you talk to somebody in the band or you know i don't know yes I can't remember. it's probably yes it's probably best not to go there but then what happens because you it doesn't take long before you you know two years and you you start your solo project with Stolen Jewels. So obviously you were definitely one of the keen members of the band to keep going. Yeah, I was determined that to, to, um, to keep playing music, to keep writing music. Um, you know, I wanted to pursue my interests, you know, which were kind of, um, you know, sampling and uh, more, more arty kind of, I suppose, aspect, more kind of programmed kind of thing. Um, I wasn't, I lost interest in playing bass, which was one of the things that made the writing process a bit harder. Right. In the latter half of the, the band's lifetime. Um, 
but you know i didn't have a particularly easy time it was stolen juice came out it was all right but then the record company which was in star street and up near edgeware road there was a big fire in the basement of the building and this where the recording studio was where i recorded all that stuff and half the building went up in flames and, and a load of my cds actually went up in, in flames as well and the record company saw it as a good opportunity to fold because things weren't going that well with them so i was out of, i was out of a job you know i was um wasn't a particularly nice time oh my god that's horrendous and depressing is that ghetto records mm. oh my god so then how do you sort of, I mean, because you do have a, a, an extensive back catalogue, which is all available on Bandcamp that I've been playing. So yeah, so then after that, is it just a case of, you know, music then does become what your parents said, kind of a, a kind of a part-time, you know, hobby? Yeah, I mean, what I should have done, instead of making an album about, a concept album about garlic, which I should have got into Britpop and started, you know, writing tunes and getting some musicians together and you know being I, I did play in the band in Dave Howard's band oh um, right uh, is that Dave Howard did, did you have a guy called Christian Hayes in that Bick Bick Hayes yeah Bick yeah he I, he was involved later on he yeah. was wasn't he the guy that Joined the Cardiacs or something? He was in the Cardiacs and Levitation and in a very sort of crusty band called yeah, Ring. That's right. Yeah, I used to see him around at Mix, Mixmaster Morris's flat. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know him very well. I was just acquainted with him. You know. Levitation. I did an interview with him last week. That's when it was, oh, yes. I, I remember him mentioning this band. I'd have to pretend I, you know, I didn't, I didn't pretend. I just didn't, <laughs> I'd never heard of that band before. So I well, wasn't going to. No, not levitation. That one that you mentioned, the something oh, happened. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. So, did you did you keep your love of music going during this period? Yeah, yeah. I, I, well, I, I made this ridiculous record with Tara Newley, the um, daughter of Joan Collins. She had this concept album in the, around '93, and I couldn't get it released and. I was, you know, I, I, the writing was on the wall, so I just kind of thought, well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna bother doing any more recordings or try and get stuff. So I just, I called a few friends I knew that made experimental music. We were part of the London free improvisation scene, and we start, I started playing gigs on that scene. So very small gigs and small experimental yes. ensemble. And then in 98, I made that Spoonbong album, which was very focused on bass playing. Wow. Yes, that was. So what was this? Was it the Stinking Rose that you were referring to before? Yes. Yeah. So that was your absolutely out there uh, concept album. Yeah. <laughs> disaster. Well, everyone has to have a moment, doesn't, don't know. And then you, you know, there was kind of some quite interesting and quirky titles. You had the one which was Corbin Septic Club. Skeptic. Skeptic. Not not, 
septic. I think it's because I once had a skeptic septic tank. Yes. So what was what was the kind of the reasoning for this particular kind of um, album and title? Uh, well, um, during the Jeremy Corbyn years, <laughs> um, uh, I just I just thought it was madness. I thought it was awful. He was awful. Um, uh, well, you know, it, I just thought there's no way this fellow can get, get anywhere near office, and the press hate him. The British press, you know, and he's, you know, he's an activist. He's useful, useful, use, useless, you know. And um, and but what was really bad about him was his attitude towards Brexit. It was it was the pits. He just could not be bothered with it. And he spent almost the whole time he was party leader in a in a media sealed basement of Seamus Milne hiding. You know, he'd do his rallies to his friends. It was like a fan club. Yes. But he was utterly useless. And, and he let Brexit happen. And all, all these horrible, nasty, snarling people get, you know, completely out of control, hurling insults at people who want to remain in the European Union and calling them traitors and, and whatnot. It was just extraordinary, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, and ugly as hell, ugly as sin, you know. I mean, I just think, you know, it, the political thing changed a lot for me. I just, I, in, in a lot of ways, again, I like to, I, you know, I'm kind of, you have to be an optimist if you're on the left because the left don't get in power very often. No. So you, you 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 say, well, yeah, people will vote on that side of things when when they can see good reason and good logic for it. You know, they can see that the welfare state is underfunded, for instance, and they need to back it more. They need to tilt it, you know, from the free market towards the state, and you know, this kind of little dance. Yes. That, that goes on. Uh, but when the Brexit thing came up, you had Labour supporters, you know, uh, you know what, indulging all this, in all this English exceptionalism and White Cliffs of Dover and Spitfires and, you know, and we, know we don't need foreigners stuff. So it, it's almost like the country went from, you know, Labour supporters, Tory supporters, those on the left, liberals, those on the right. It went to people who were nationalistic, gullible, because they believed all that crap that people like Nigel Farage and Jacob Rees-Mogg were saying, and then rationalists who didn't want trade sanctions on their own country. So it was like almost like, you know, it wasn't split between left and right anymore. It was, it was between the sort of gullible and impressionable and the, and the, and the ones who, who were using logic to make their decisions. You know, and that, I think that, that was the huge problem. That's what's happened in politics now. It's, 
it's exploded the whole idea of these of these kind of you know uh, this idea of left and right you know you can't because now you know we've ended up with this awful situation where yeah this so-called red wall voters you know who've all voted for this awful idea of brexit but they've got to be appeased by by socialists you know and uh, but they they don't you know they don't particularly want a labor government any, anymore you know it's, it's kind of it's all been exploded and it's actually quite shattered my faith in in uh, how things the british political system it's just exploded it for, for so many people yes well it's it certainly has i had just been reading the i don't know if you come across this author oh i don't know he, he wrote sketches for split spitting image john o'farrell he's done several he did things can only get better which was his kind of time of being in, in, in the Labour Party and all the different elections. And it goes up to 1997. And then he's done another one from then titled Things Can Only Get Worse. But it's what I loved about it was that I could relate. You know, he's kind of a moderate left, which is... And, um, you know, this great optimism and every election that you go through from the 80s, the, the Michael Foote years, the Neil Kinnock years... You know, these kind of, this is the one. Oh, no, we got hammered again. Oh, this is, no, we got hammered again. You know, yeah. and then suddenly it's like 1997. It's like, oh, my God, we've won. We've won. So I don't know what to do now. Yeah. It's too weird. You know, it's like, anyway, so. Um, well, I, you can tell, you, you know, you, you could, I could tell where, you know, when the leadership um, battle came up between Brown and Blair in, it wasn't probably 96 or something, wasn't it? I can't remember. Well, it was probably when John Smith died, which might have been a few, few oh, years. Oh, yes, a couple of years before, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, and Tony Blair, yeah, Gordon Brown gave way, didn't he, to, to Tony Blair when he realised. And I thought, hang on a minute, this guy's going to win it. You know, you can tell, you can tell um, that it was right. And, and you know, John Major fucked things up so badly. Half the carpet cabinet went to jail. <laughs> <laughs> but it, I suppose what's quite interesting yeah, on that yeah. point, it does take that amount of kind of 18 years and, and most of them ending up in jail or being sort of absolutely humiliated from their personal life yeah. for there to be a change of government. I think that's that's what you kind of have to rely yeah. on eventually. I think, it now, though. I think we have got permanent, we've got permanent... Um, Tory government, we've got one forever. I don't, unless, I don't think numerically, I don't think Labour can do it again. They can't, they, if you look at it, physic, you can you look at it, all the, the way it's structured, the seats they need to win, everything, you know, you can think about it in terms of that, you can see it won't happen. It won't happen again, unfortunately. Yes. It's a weird, it's a weird world. So anyway, that was the story behind that album, which we'll have to go back and, and analyse a lot more. I, that was a concise answer. I like your style. I mean, when, during that kind of time, you did one of those things, I, I remember you, you probably watched the BBC Ford documentary about bands reforming. Some are better than others. What, your experience of reforming Stump, how did that, what, what, what was the idea and, and the rationale for it? I think it was just, it was curiosity. So I, 
I'm just going to get a glass of wine because I've left my glass of wine over here. Yes, get your wine and then decide. Decide on it. Do, 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 do. Right, yes. Red wine, I know. So look, it, I know, liberal, the liberal elite, as we, we call ourselves, don't we, with our red wine. Shocking. Anyway, yes. So the rationale that you think, because obviously the band finishes not on a high and not too many good times. Well, you had good times, but then what, what was the moment and year that, that it came together? I think we started talking about it around 2014. Um, I can't actually remember the, 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 um, the sequence, but I think we played the gig in 2017, I think. I don't know. No, you couldn't have done because... It took a while to get together because of the, uh, every, you know, we were all scattered around different locations. It must have, I think it might have been earlier because there's mix involved, isn't he? What do you mean? Did, did you reform with Mick on, um, on vocals, Stump? Yeah, yeah, we're all there. I, no, because I was to say, I think he dies in 2015. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it must have been 2014. <laughs> I'll leave it for the historians to work out. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, I didn't want to, you know. academics. Just getting, yeah, just, I was just a bit like, oh, I thought it was with. Oh, right. So you, yeah, so there was a, there was a lot of, there was a long period of time. So what was the, what was the initial idea? Because often it's one or two people who bump into each other in, in the supermarket, or mostly at someone's funeral and think, you know what? We should just get the band back together. It's a good idea. What could go wrong? So what was, what was your orig original idea? Curiosity was like, you know, could, could it be done again? And I, 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 I get, you know, I like um, uh, Rob and Chris. I like them. And we, we've, we've met up from time to time and had fun, you know. Um, so, it, but the, 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 you know, it was unknown about Mick because Mick was. Um, you know, he was, he was difficult to get hold of, and um, he was very, very different from, from the way he'd been. You know, yes, years ago, was, you know, not the same person. So, um, and he settled into this very rigid routine, which involved going down the pub, you know, every day, and um, you know, and. It was clear that, that, you know, he didn't really like that routine disrupted too much. But, yeah, he was, he was deep into kind of, you know, into, into that. Yeah. Did you, the, the, did you kind of get together with, um, with Rob and Chris to get the music sorted and then just hope that Mick yeah. would get the kind of lyrics and... Yeah, yeah. We had a little play in at Rob's house, um, which was quite funny because Mick, uh, Chris couldn't remember anything, and I was having to sort of try and remember and teach him the guitar bits. Um, he knew maybe one or two tunes, 
but oddly, I I I kind of remembered most of it, you know. <laughs> and Rob had forgotten some of it, but he he you know it was quite it was quite clear that he could learn it quite quickly because he's quite disciplined sort of yeah. music. He's quite disciplined. Um, and so the idea was that we were went and learnt it at home and then come to the rehearsal and it'd be easier. Yeah. But it, it didn't transpire like that. Me and me and Rob knew knew all the stuff. We did put a lot of work in. The other two guys, not so so much. And Mick especially didn't know any of the lyrics. He spent the first two days writing down the lyrics. He hadn't done any preparation for it. So it was like starting from scratch and he couldn't reach some of the notes anymore. He hadn't done any singing. He was very weak, you know, he was popping out all the time for a cigarette. And I didn't see him eat the entire week we were rehearsing. Right. Um, he, you know, he didn't, he, he seemed, there was a sort of fog around him, fog. You know, he didn't, there wasn't any sort of bonhomie, any sort of, you know, normal chat there wasn't any jokes or anything it was it was just he did he changed a lot you know yeah absolutely no and, and um yes there's yeah and so did you just play the one gig yeah and did that go i i did that go okay we just about got away with it we just about <laughs> <laughs> we just about did it there was, some, there was some good bits in the gig and uh we were, I was dreading it because we had this kind of little gig beforehand in the rehearsal studio. We, some people in Clonakilty where we, where we rehearsed were invited down and it was just awful. It was a disaster. I, thought, I was thinking, we've got to play a gig tomorrow, you know, in front of, you know. I was thinking, this is going to be a disaster, embarrassing and everything, you know. But we managed to get away with it. There was enough enough meat on the bones just yes just and, and a sort of a, a kind of a sympathetic empathetic audience giving a forgiving audience I mean was it the case when you came off stage and you were just backstage with the band did it feel like some form of closure for you and and the other you know like people like Rob and Chris as a sort of way to think well that was it's quite nice to have just done this one one thing just to just sort of give it a little bit of a Bookend it. Yeah, I thought that I think maybe Chris perhaps wouldn't have minded doing more gigs. You know, uh, I was skeptical about whether it would work. Um, I didn't really feel like doing another one. Um, I think perhaps Rob felt the same way as me, although, but I think certainly Chris would probably have wanted, you know, would have enjoyed doing more. Yeah, but it's got a question of whether it could all hold together. I, I had the feeling it wouldn't hold together because I think Matt Mick was very fragile. Yeah, not at all well, and you know he he had no energy. He was sort of flagging. You know he was he was not well. You know. No, no, that's difficult. And um, yeah, so that that was the end. But did Cherry Red Records put out a? Yeah. compilation of all your material so you've got it all archived and nicely done they, some of it not the not the fierce pancake stuff but the other stuff yeah 
Yeah, God, that's um, will that ever come out then? The fierce pancake release. I don't know. I don't know. I don't really. I don't not. I don't really sort of care much whether it comes out or not. Someone will put it out at some point, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And is it the case with all your solo stuff? You've got all the ownership and publishing rights and everything on that. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I haven't. I've never had a publisher, so they're all unpublished. Yes, and there you go. But this this is the first one with Dim. This is this new recording is the first one with Dimple Disc. Yeah, it's all to play for. So, is it the case with this? There'll be any live shows, or is it going to be just the release? No, I, I, I don't. I'm not going to uh, try and recreate what's on the record. I might do some, um, you know, some old gigs where I sort of make some do some preparations beforehand and. And make some noises that are nearly like nearly like the record, but I won't I won't try and replicate it. Yes. No. Yeah. But it sounds like you've got, you know, a bit like Prince, you've just got lots, hours, days worth of material that's all still waiting to be, you know, recorded and processed and produced and mixed. Yes, but um my you see, that's true, but my attitude has changed towards it. I've become, um, you know, the, the years of indifference, of, you know, in the general indifference to music, it, it affects you eventually. You just think, well, I don't want to center, I don't want to focus on whether that material is going to, do this and do that. I don't. I, I'll just. I'll make the stuff. Yes. But I don't want to focus. I don't want to fixate on how, where you know how successful it's going to be because usually it's not successful. It's just there's two hundred people, three hundred people around the world that like my stuff and buy it and you know send me messages and stuff and then there's a sort of a smaller maybe another couple of hundred people who will will buy a record you know mm -hmm. might buy one of my records because they're friends of friends you know but i don't think it, it I, I, unless i got offered some you know a, a tv series you know like the, the tv soundtrack i don't see how it could really grow unless I don't know. I, I, I'm not optimistic about about the commercial side of it. You know. Yes. Uh, but we'll see. Hopefully, Dimple Disc is going to have a great couple of years. And um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm amazed, actually, if I'm honest, that I haven't been that I've never done a, a soundtrack or 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 of any kind. And my music is quite geared towards that it's instrumental music and I can I'm quite sort of flexible I can write a, a brief and I, I've never no one's ever sort of you know I've never been offered yes like that. you know over nearly 40 years of making music so um, I don't I think if, if something had happened like that I would, my fortunes might have changed a bit but yeah I don't think I think we all think 
we need, you know, that we're, we, we all complain about a lot, don't we? We always think we, we could have been bigger or we could have been more successful or we deserve more success or, you know, we're, and it's, we're all, it's not true, is it? It's just relativity. We're, we're, all, we're all sort of slightly dis, dis, dissatisfied as musicians. <laughs> I know, it's a great sense of dissatisfaction. I think a lot of it, you know, especially with, you know, it's kind of interesting because you said Damien's part of the Dimple Disc world and I did an interview. Actually, I think I've done, done an interview with him and also Steve Mack from That Petrol Emotion and the history of that band is quite interesting. It was like they were almost always just about to get that moment and it was like, no, you're not. No, you're not. You know, it was almost like this. Those guys are funny because I like them. I love them, that, that, that band. Yes. Uh, I know them quite well. But they always say, oh, you know, we, 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 we didn't make it big. But they were on the cover of all the, all the, the they were on the cover of The Enemy about three times. They were on Melody Maker, the cover of that. I mean, Stump only got one cover the entire time they were around. They, they, they did all right. They, did, they made five albums and they did pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I know. Well, I thought they were, you know, it was only when I did the interviews with Steve and Damien that they almost seemed like, no, we were complete, you know, it never happened. It's like, oh, really? I thought it did. But, you know, it was like stories of like getting signed and then the person who signed them said, oh, actually, I'm leaving because Paul McCartney's just said, give me a job, so I've got to go. And no one at the record company is going to like you, but never mind, bye. You know, and it's things like that, you know, I don't know. There's that. That's kind of an obviously... Um, a common story of just like people in the record label just thinking, right, we need to get rid of these bands. You know, the the previous person had left, you know. And um, yeah, and I think one of the things that often gets mentioned is timing. People always say, you either, you've just got it lucky and you've just managed to get there in the right time or you just missed it by a couple of months or, you you know, and it's like, oh, sorry, the scene has moved on and, you know, you were that close. We had that, uh, we had a, the anthology, the Stump Anthology coming out and on that record label. And it was selling quite well. And then it was taken over, the record company was taken over by another group. And the boss of that label came in and said, Stump, who the hell are these? And <laughs> apparently all the, these beautifully produced kind of, you know, triple CD got thrown in the skip. All, like that. And all these outlets were going, we've all, we had these on order. Uh, uh, where, where, where are they, you know? And there were all these record shops all around, around the world and, and particularly in Ireland saying, we can't get hold of this thing. What's happened to it? And this, this record company took took over and just dumped the entire lot in a skip, and there was a a, a waiting list for all, all of it. They just no, no you know. My so, God, that's horrendous. That is, yeah. oh, that was Sanctuary Records, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Yes, that is that is kind of odd, really, isn't it? I know a lot of labels kind of had real problems in the late eighties when Rough Trade kind of went bankrupt and then lots of the cartel and and the knock-on effect yeah. was kind of horrendous with people not being able to get their stock back to sell it and you know 
and that moment then goes and it's a bit like oh well that was a shame because that was the moment and we've missed it so that's the end of that so i better get another career so it's it is it's a cruel business isn't it <laughs> it's a cruel business anyway look oh yeah if you could have just said you know like if there was one thing you wished you'd whisper to your 16 or 18 year old self you know just one bit of you know i don't know not even one but could be two you know words of wisdom or, or some advice is there anything that you would wished you'd known back then that you know now oh Gosh, I, I should have prepared for this this question, shouldn't I? <laughs> Some people go, I would do nothing differently. It's all fine. Just go for it. Oh, uh, I, I think I'd tweak it all. <laughs> I'd tweak it all. I'd change everything and, um, and alter it all, modify it, tinker with it, you know, modulate it. Would that be would that be the music or was that just kind of the the general practical things like the admin and contracts and you know just like dis, what decision you know those kind of more yeah. managerial decisions. Um, well, I think I would have um, at some point, you know, I would have. Thing is, I, I, I. Only learn really to do to be able to write really good melodies, pop tunes. I only learned that a bit, you know, a bit too late. I learned that a bit too late. I think that if I had, um, it's funny because when I was doing Whispering Falls, uh, there was a woman called Janie who played on the album, and I said to her. <laughs> I've never had a I've never had a music lesson before. Can you just show me a few things about chords? <laughs> <laughs> this is after like making twenty years of music. I said, "What is a chord?" First of all, <laughs> God, she must have thought this is going to be a yeah. long day. He said, "She she said, well, your stuff's full of chords," and she played my tune. She said, "Well, yeah, you, you but you, as you've you know she 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 pointed out what what I was doing." She, she gave me a basic music lesson about how I sort of put it together and how I could I could have put it together this way and could have, could have put it together that way if I understood the rules of this. Right. And she spent about an hour with me, you know, uh, kind of going through it, and um, it was really it was really helpful. <laughs> I thought. <laughs> I wish I'd, I wish I'd asked before, you know, about about that, you know, especially if you want to write something that has a sort of con conventional melody or a melody in a set of chords, right? You know, how you move that on, uh, which I didn't fully understand before. I just kind of took pop pop look, and you know, and it didn't seem to matter with 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 a lot of my music because it's made of bits. I tend to make music in bits, segments, so, so they're kind of like things that smash up against each other, um, uh, fragments that are sort of arranged in a pattern. Yeah. They're not based on a kind of musical kind of idea. Uh, so I didn't know this side of stuff. And she, she gave me this basic lesson. And, and I could have done with that probably about 20 years ago. God. So who, so who gave you this? Was this on the Whispering Foils? Yeah, her name was Janie, Janie Armand. I don't, I'm, I haven't seen her 
for a long time. I don't know what, where she is now. My God, if only you met her in the eighties, <laughs> it would have it would have helped. So, did that just change your approach to music? It just meant I could do that now. I I understood very easily. I, I mean, I was kind of doing it, doing some of it already, but it just made it clearer that it took took all the mystery out of um, you know it it, it just. Uh, it just showed how how simple it is to put stuff material together and make a tune, you know. Right. Oh, that's yes. That's that's one thing you'd have told your sixteen-year-old self. Get some music lessons. Yeah, not those. Not the kind of music lessons that were around when when we were sixteen, though. God, they were awful. <laughs> yeah, you had to sit in front of the piano, and, you know. Yes. Some, and, and, yeah, that it. Music, most music turned me off. You know, it's the stuff at school, um, the, the, you know, the classical pieces, um, it all turned me off. It said, don't be, don't be a musician. That, that's horrible. That sounds horrible. Mm. I, I have no interest in it. You know, pop music turned me on. You know, it was, you know, hearing, you know, Paul Mc a Paul McCartney song or a Brian Roth song. Um, that was oh yeah, that's that's great, you know. It's, it was that kind of you know. And so, um, but I didn't know how pop songs were written. You know. Yeah, well, I must admit, "Band on the Run" was one of those classic albums I remember in the seventies. My older brother had a copy. Yes, that was very dramatic and exciting. And what other? Was there anything else that you wished you'd known when you were sixteen? Uh, well, it's, it's probably a long list. I just can't think of anything at the moment. You know. <laughs> yes. As I say, I would have done a lot, lots differently. Over a lot more tweaking. Clothes. What was that? Tied, I would have worn better clothes. I would have sort of tidied myself up a bit. Right. Yeah. Not had right. a little mustache when I was twenty-one, and you know, I would have, I wouldn't have bought that coat that looked like, you know, that is bloody awful. You know. Uh, you know, I've sort of tidied myself up a bit, and um, you know, maybe tried to get a car earlier on. You know, yes, <laughs> good practical things. Yes, learn to yeah. learn to pass your test early and better clothes. That's good. Yes, good advice there. There you go. But what's do you? What's your sort of fondest memory of being in Stump? By the way, what was the kind of one of the high, very highlights of it? Well, there were there were lots. I mean, the the the, the uh, stump were quite a. I don't have you ever met any of the other people in stump? No. Everyone's have very strong personality. You know, very outspoken, quite eccentric kind of band. Very argumentative, taking the piss out of each other all the time. It wasn't relaxing. <laughs> You couldn't sort of have a cup of tea and have a nice chat. It wasn't like that. There'd be, you know, banter and something going on, you know, an argument of some sort, some problem. Uh, and, but then it was, you know, we, when we knew what we were doing, you know, it was just incredible feeling. I've never once got nervous doing those big gigs, you know, at the Brixton Academy and, you know, the 
uh, town and country club, places like that. Australia, yeah. Playing on a big stage because I knew the band was so good. You know, they were really, really, really quite good outfit and knew what we were doing. Uh, so that that was a that was a tremendous feeling of of um, invul invulnerability. And what was the sort of general stunt fan? Who was you know? Did you think? Oh yeah, that we had. Uh, we had sort of guys jumping up and down at the front, yeah, because you know, the tunes were like a laugh and all that. And then we had people list, you know, a, a calmer set in the middle, and then chin scratchers at the back, kind of listening for the how the music was put together. Right, I think we'll stop it there. That was me in conversation with Kev Hopper talking about his new album and life in music and much, much more. Hopefully you enjoy that. Anyway, look, this has been The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. These have all been archived. I know, aren't you lucky? So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just do C86 Show again. I feel like I'm repeating myself here. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, yes, well, look, enjoy, go and buy the album or download it at least and um, have a great week.